Hey everybody, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alf speaking, the CEO and the founder of the Macro Compass. With me today, as always, Andreas Steno speaking here, um, founder and CEO of Steno Research. Great pleasure once again to host the macro trading floor in a crazy week of macro volatility. Um, just before we started recording here, Alf, um, news hit the wires from Japan. Uh, and we have to disclaim that we're recording on Friday, the 10th of February. So a lot can change before we actually release this podcast, um, not least when it comes to this new governor um, in Japan. We've seen how they've aired trial balloons, um, as far as I'm concerned, earlier this week already. Uh, so it is not yet confirmed that we have a, um, a new governor uh, in Japan. But... As of now, the market is clearly reacting uh, to uh, to the news that Ueda will become the new governor of, of Bank of Japan. And I mean, from the very surface of it, it looks as if he's been criticizing this um, QQE program quite a few times in articles. So it could could be quite a game changer if, if true. I have um, one very insightful remark on the new Bank of Japan governor. Who the fuck is Kazuo Ueda, Andreas? I mean, <laughs> honestly, I have no idea. And I see plenty of people going on the SSRN or Google Scholar papers because this guy is a former, actually, he's a macroeconomist, PhD, and what have you, uh, expert in monetary policy, but he's an academic, basically. Uh, worked at yeah, the Bank he... of Japan and uh, he's an academic. Yeah. And now everybody's like, yeah, I know this guy, you know, he used to be at school with me. We talked about QQE. I mean, dude, nobody knows. But from a market reaction uh, standpoint, obviously you remove the uncertainty that Amamiya would be uh, the new governor, right, Andreas? It's off the table, so the continuity with Kuroda is out. You also understand, politically speaking, um, Japan politicians don't really want a continuation of that policy. They want something else, apparently, because the opposition against Amami has been pretty fierce, apparently. Yes. And that's what matters the most, I would say, for the market reaction. So you have the yen rallying uh, on the expectation that, politically speaking, you want a new set of policy in Japan. Um, and Japanese yield are testing again the high end of the 50 basis point, and swaps again are pricing the, you know, some aggressive tightening ahead for Japan. That's all that matters. If somebody asks me who is the new governor, I have no freaking idea. We'll find out as soon as he says yeah. something. If, if you uh, look up his name in Bank of Japan's own database, um, we have uh, articles around him from 2003. That was the latest data point from within Bank of Japan. So 20 years has passed since he... Um, last uh, was a part of Bank of Japan's board. So, I mean, fair point. So, um, what else, Andreas, this week in markets? Um, I would say the thing that struck me the most is that markets are really good at pricing um, excesses in each of the regimes, right? So, a week or two weeks ago, you had soft lending really being priced as the strong consensus, right? And I think there are three regimes. It's either recessionary pricing, it's either soft lending pricing, or it's either higher for longer, strong growth, no recession at all, et cetera, et cetera, kind of pricing. And uh, everybody was on this soft lending pricing a week ago, and all of a sudden they wake up and they realize that Powell's speech wasn't particularly dovish after all. We have had a string of um, governors trying to go to the wires and again, correct or try to sound more hawkish from Kashkari to Williams to all the others. The front end of the bond market sells off real yields are higher, 
and the equity market takes a little bit of a breather from the rally. So what do you make of all this development this week? I'd like to ask you, first of all, what do you make of Cascari's comments on lasagne? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. So I I have this headline, I'm on Twitter, and I have this headline that says, Neil Kashkari says that his little measure of inflation being very sticky is a tray of frozen lasagna, which now costs $21 instead of 16 before the pandemic. And I'm like, I don't care about whether that's a good measure of inflation at all, but why would you eat frozen lasagna, you barbarian? That's actually the first comment I have. But no, I mean, they're trying everything to sound more hawkish, to be honest, than what the market interpreted, Andreas. And um, literally, it's all going to be about the data now. And I yes. don't know whether we talked about the labor market report already or the latest. No, we we, we, we haven't. And I, I, that is why I I think it is so tempting to fade this recent repricing in, in yield space um, because it's based on one non-farm payrolls report, probably flawed by seasonal issues. Um, I, I, I wouldn't count on the US economy being able to deliver 500,000 jobs a month. I mean, something is wrong here. Um, no matter whether it is driven by uh, one-offs related to a record high in births of new establishments. That's at least one of the explanations being given for this January report, or whether it is um, based by a weaker uh, or a weakness in the seasonal adjustment, because we know January is one of the trickiest months to adjust because uh, net net, you have more than a a couple of million uh, job losses. Uh, So you need to adjust for that. I mean, what I can say is that I don't buy that this is a new trend for the labor market. <laughs> no, as always, the truth is a bit in the middle, I would yeah. say, right? I mean, you have non-farm payrolls that even if you correct for weather, statistical adjustments, whatever you want to correct for, they were pretty solid in general, even after all the adjustments. But then you have other stuff like, I don't know, um, ADP employment or... Uh, Challenger. Yeah. yeah, the challenger job cuts, mm. the household survey that printed 84K adjusted for population adjustment in January. So you have these other measures that are pointing to a labor market that is running at best very close to keeping unemployment rate just stable. So let's say 100K jobs a month. That's what yes. they're telling you. And then there is non-farm payrolls, which is said even after adjustment, it's telling you it's running much hotter than that. Probably the truth is in the middle. And I want to make an example. Do you remember where at some point, I think it was November last year, Non-farm payrolls were pointing to 2.8 million jobs being added in 2022, and the household survey was pointing to zero full-time jobs being added, right? So there was a huge sister. This adjustment, population adjustment from 2022, has closed a third of that, roughly a third of that. It still remains such a wide sister. So I think the most conservative things to do is to assume that the truth is somewhere in the middle, but the market, you're right, Andreas, has assigned 100% uh, correctness to the non-farm payroll data and pushed to your treasury yield um, higher. Interestingly, though, the curve is flattening further. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. You cannot get this curve steeper in any possible way. It's been no. really a widow maker, <laughs> this, this steepener trade. Huh? Yeah, it has. Um, and I, I think else, uh, what's also interesting here is that we get such a firm response from the Federal Open Market Committee just based on this uh, because the response has been there, um, without a doubt. Uh, and that that is why I tend to dislike 
100% data dependency from meeting to meeting because you get a lot of volatility out of it. Um, remember, I, I know we talk about him a lot. Uh, your good old friend Mario Draghi from, from the European Central Bank. He would never have allowed this kind of volatility around his decision making. Um, he would have clearly communicated, we intend on doing this in March. Um, no, basically, more or less, no matter what happens, uh, to sort of guide the front end towards where he wants it to be. Uh, and right now, the Fed is not really able to guide the market exactly where they want it to be because of this volatility in, in key figures. Uh, and the volatility in key figures will remain because we know how tricky it is to assess some of these trends post the pandemic. We know that seasonal adjustments are larger than usual. So I was looking a bit at how investors are reacting to this week with non-farm payrolls and Fed speakers and the higher for longer kind of theme now back to the, on the table. I checked a bit the option uh, tape, and if I'm not mistaken, over 24 hours between Wednesday and Thursday this week, there were roughly $35 million spent by one account, <laughs> probably a large hedge fund, that decided to buy protection against Fed funds being higher than 5.5% by September and possibly 6% by year-end. Um, that's a lot of money to spend on options. It's uh, the equivalent for people to understand in terms of Delta of buying, of selling 1 billion of 10-year treasury bonds. Yes. So that's roughly the equivalent in Delta terms. It's pretty large. Um, so what I see here is that people, I think, Andreas, are uh, skeptics, growing more skeptical that a recession is coming anytime soon. That's actually what's been done here. The, the, the recessionary tail is being priced away pretty aggressively. And so it becomes base case soft lending and a higher probability that actually the economy does pretty well. That's what's being priced in. But do you agree? I think the big question is now for how long will this short-term cyclical upswing actually last? Because I think it's fair to assume that there is a cyclical upswing um, for the time being um, could last through this quarter, maybe into the early parts of next quarter. And the reason why I feel so comfortable saying that is that the impulse from Chinese credit creation in Q4 from the reopening of the Chinese economy is now showing up in various live gauges of cyclical activity. Um, we can also see that expectations forming around uh, the orders book for uh, the most cyclical components of the economy have regained a little bit of pace in Q1. Uh, and not least when we talk about Europe, that is a game changer relative to Q4. Um, just look at the December numbers out of Germany. Uh, the Q4 GDP report out of Germany, Germany will have to be revised substantially lower. Um, so it was a recessionary quarter. Um, on aggregate in Germany, without a doubt. Uh, so if there, there is this small cyclical upswing, I I guess that is why the market is sort of um, following this, this path. But remember that money supply, interest rate hikes, they work with long time lags and we're not there yet. Uh, which is essentially also what central banks started communicating last week, that we should remember that these time lags are long. And all of a sudden, one week later, they start uh, communicating that, uh, well, the extent of hikes needs, needs, to, <laughs> needs to reprice higher because we had a strong job report. Uh, I, I, I am um, 
I'm kind of puzzled that the market is not able to see through these time lags because given usual time lags, we should still see a very weak uh, second half of this year. There's no doubt about it, basically. Yeah, I think the central bank is uncomfortable with markets challenging them and pricing a lot of cuts at um, at the back end of the second half of this year. So that's what they're trying to fight back. And uh, let's see if they manage that. Ultimately, it's going to be all about the data. I mean, uh, maybe not monthly prints. So let's not be maniac and crazy vol around this monthly prints. But uh, let's have a look at what the data brings for nominal activity going forward. Shall we call in somebody who has a quite a long experience in fixed income? Maybe can make a bit of sense for us into all this crazy vol. And back with the guest of the week, we are happy to have Kevin Flanagan as the guest of the week on the macro trading floor. He's the head of fixed income strategy at Wisdom Tree. Kevin, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to have you, Kevin. Um, the first question I want to ask you relates to a crazy week of volatility in U.S. Treasury markets. Um, it seems as if we are standing at crossroads when it comes to the pricing of the future path of the federal funds rate. So what do you make of this last week of extreme volatility in dollar rates and the rhetoric from the Federal Reserve. I think that's the primary theme, right? Volatility remaining a market constant, and it comes from central banks. You know, whether whether it's here in the U.S. or or the ECB, and now conjecture about what the Bank of Japan may or may not do later this year uh, as well. So I, I think this volatility in the Treasury market is going to be a hallmark for trading activity throughout 2023 as. The market tries to figure out where the Fed is going. That's what happens when you go from kind of autopilot, which we, you know, once the Fed started raising rates last year, that's kind of where we went, autopilot, but, you know, shifting into higher gears from 25 to 50 to 75 basis points. But now that we're moving the other way and the Fed's becoming data dependent, that means with the numbers that we get, much like the employment report recently, that's going to determine, you know, the direction or the commentary, the narrative that we're going to see from the Fed, and it will have a direct impact on pricing in the Treasury market. Now, Kevin, one of the things about this volatility is it seems to be the reflection of investors being more comfortable with a disinflationary soft lending. Mm -hmm. It seems that it's getting increasingly priced in. Um, the data, though, especially the latest labor market report, doesn't seem to particularly back that thesis, as in, some commentators are arguing the economy is much stronger than it's required for a soft lending, and the Fed might be worried. So what's your take on the ultimate terminal rate, basically? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's the great question, right? I, I think as we were heading into this year, this has to have been one of the most widely anticipated, let's call it recessions at first, that you were reading about in, in a lot of research. And that narrative has begun to shift a little bit. Um, you know, it was interesting. We had the ISM services gauge here in the U.S. We already know manufacturing went below 50 into contraction territory, right? And then the service uh, aspect of it did until it didn't. So that was kind of lost in the shuffle uh, on Friday after the employment report came out that we had ISM services go back almost to the exact same level it was two months prior. So it was almost as if that move into contraction territory never happened. And you are getting this reassessment that is it possible the Fed could achieve what seems to usually be unachievable, a soft landing. So where does that put the terminal rate out to, to answer your question? 
I think Pal was pretty straightforward yesterday. And, and you know what's interesting is Andreas and I were talking a little bit before is I don't think Pal is giving us any groundbreaking headlines here. If you look at the Fed's dot plot, if you look at what they have been talking about, it's kind of like, well, if these things come to fruition, this is where we were going to go. And where we were going to go, meaning the Fed, was 510 on the Fed funds rate. So, you know, you more recently post jobs get Powell talking about leaning towards that five and a four, five and a quarter terminal rate for funds. That's not new. What was new, what was the market's pricing mechanism? The market had been saying, nah, we don't think you're going to go over five. And we think you're going to cut rates sooner rather than later. To me, it may not be what the terminal rate is, what the more important part for investors is going to be how long is the Fed on pause. That, I think, is going to be the story. Once we get to that terminal rate, that will become the headline story. And obviously, the more the Fed talks, the more they're open for market misinterpretation. I think we can all all see that occurring, right? Definitely, Kevin. And um you're basically uh, moving me towards what I find the biggest puzzle right now as an investor myself, because as we entered 2023, it seems as if everyone and their mothers agreed on a recession happening sometime during this year. Um, and the yield curve currently sort of predicts that recession to a certain extent as well, since we price in a rate um, cut cycle commencing during the second half of the year, despite this 5.1 terminal pricing of the Fed funds short term. So if we all agree that the cuts are upcoming, is it really worthwhile pursuing that story from an investment perspective? Well, you know, I, I think what's important, how we look at this is going to be when does the Fed pivot to rate cuts. So everyone talks about the new PAL pivot being kind of like when they stop raising rates to going on hold. No, the real pivot's going to be when they start guiding us into rate cuts. The, and, and so far, they're nowhere near that. Now, that being said, in fairness to the market, right, we've all been doing this a long time, you know, is it don't fight the Fed or don't fight the tape? We're trying to figure that out right now, which adage we should be following. And, and to the, you know, for the market to kind of in their defense, maybe, is a, a good way of putting it. If you go back a year ago, the Fed's dot plot was only looking for a couple of rate hikes for last year. That was 450 basis points ago. So it, it's arguably, you know, easy to see how the market's not necessarily buying what Powell and company are selling at this stage of the game. But if the economic numbers do continue to show that we may achieve that soft landing, then the argument is going to be that there's no need for rate cuts, maybe until 2024. That is a completely different scenario than where treasuries are priced right now, specifically in the front end of the curve, short-term treasuries. You know, I've been doing this a long time. You, you have to go back, I think, to the 1980s Volcker days to find a time when the Fed was actively raising interest rates and the Treasury two-year yield was actually below the Fed funds target. So, I mean, is, is the market that far ahead of the curve? I think that's too far ahead of the curve right now. And I was looking at some technical, some Fibonacci analysis on the two-year, and, and, you know, we did not break through 4%. So that could mean 
that we head back towards 477, which is what the high was a couple of months ago. To me, that makes a little bit more sense than trying to chase the two-year. I, I go back and I, I kind of was joking around with some of our people that, you know, somebody last week before the employment report bought the two-year at 403 and the 10-year around 338. What was that? What was that purchase telling you, right? I mean, if you're buying there, you seemingly think the rally is going to continue. And, and I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, just the mindset of the Treasury market, kind of like trying to find things to justify where these yield levels were just a few days ago. Kevin, look, I have a, a question shifting gears in the fixed income space towards credit because that's been something else that has left people a bit puzzled. So we've got um, the first evidence that banks have been tightening lending standards over the last quarter, and it makes sense, right? I mean, if you have a feeling that you're very late in the cycle and the economy is slowing down, you tend to be a bit more defensive with your credit uh, being given away. The fact that interest rates have risen materially and the cycle has weakened generally should lead to some delinquencies and defaults, Despite that, credit spreads, uh, I think five-year U.S. investment-grade credit spreads are trading below 70 basis points. For reference, 55 basis point is a QE kind of level, and we are 15 basis points away, not that far. So what's your take on credit spreads in general? Well, I would think, I, I, I think that's a great observation. I think on the investment-grade side, um, we have probably come too far too fast. It's been a great first month, six five, six weeks of the new year for fixed income, right? I mean, that was one of the themes also we talked about, one of the worst, if not the worst year on record for U.S. fixed income markets really set the stage for a good year for 2023. But it seems like the whole year of 2023 got thrown into one month uh, to start the year. So I, I would, you know, I think concur with, with where you were going with the, with the question that, that spreads tighten too much. That you got to the point on the investment grade side where things were, were becoming a little bit too rich, too expensive. And it's interesting when, when you look at the credit aspect, because we talked about high yield coming into the new year as well. Kind of like fixed income or return to normalcy, where yield levels are now at you know readings a generation of investors have never seen before, right? You had to go back 15 years to find out where we are now. No more zero interest rates, no more negative rates. And there was a better sense of, of normalcy on the U.S. rate front. And we thought high yield represented some value. So the knock was early on, well, if we're going to a recession, I'd rather be in IG than HY corporates, right? But now if you're looking at it, if the Fed does achieve, if that jobs report, it's only one month, right? So you don't want to get crazy. But nevertheless, if you look at jobless claims, they're still well below 200,000 here. So if the Fed does manage to keep us out of a recession, then the opposite would tend to hold, I think, for the markets that you'd probably rather be in high yield clipping a coupon of seven and a half, eight percent rather than investment grade corporates, which are going to be more interest sensitive. And you could see some further upside in U.S. rates. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. 
Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you wanna get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. If, if we compare the current scenario with um, scenarios with high inflation in the past. Um, you correctly referred to a, a period in the uh, 70s and 80s um, in terms of inflation and the similarities to the current situation. If we are to judge the Fed's rea reaction function in relation to inflation, what would you watch for right now? Goods inflation is obviously coming down, but what about the rest of the basket? Well, Powell seemed to, to finally come to the market in a sense, right? Where he's looking at services x housing um you know we've all been doing this a long time you can x everything you want out to come to whatever conclusion <laughs> that you want to draw but I, I think i think it's valid i think it makes sense because the housing aspect to the inflation numbers here uh in the u.s tend to lag i mean the inflation numbers themselves lag I, I remember greenspan used to say it was akin to looking in the rearview mirror so you do need to take that i think into consideration so I, I think we're kind of, not to use the term again on autopilot, but I think we're all operating under this assumption inflation here in the U.S. will continue to cool. It's just a question by how much, and, and it will continue on the good side. The stickiness could come from the services, and if it's services X housing, obviously that's going to gain Powell and company's attention. But what I think was perhaps more important that unless you got some inflation surprises here, meaning a reading or two that came in a little bit hotter than expected, that Fed policy was going to be focused on real time econ numbers, the jobs numbers, jobless claims, consumer kind of spending, because we all know housing is taking a hit, which, by the way, it looks like it may have bottomed out, by the way. So I would say going forward, and, and Pal stressed this just yesterday, was I think it's the jobs numbers. I think that's where the Fed is gone, right? That's the dual mandate. I think they feel they're making progress on inflation. Not there yet, but making progress. But it's the jobs part of the equation where they want to see some cooling in activity. And, and I would be shocked to see... 517,000 gain in non-farm payrolls a month from now. Um, let's not play this back because if it happens, I, I swear I didn't say that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you, you need to see, I mean, even if it's 200,000, I think the Fed needs something lower than that. And, and a few months of that kind of number where it's only 50, it's only 75,000. I'm not talking about negative. I think the Fed would just like to get it down to 100 or below 100 before they feel more comfortable. So I, I would say if you're looking at clues for Fed policy going forward, it's back to the future. It's the monthly jobs reports. The interesting thing, Kevin, is that um, whether we get a recession or not, 
the first innings always look like a soft landing anyway, by definition, right? Because if you're slowing an economy down, there is always a window where the slowing down looks okay, right? And so far, that's exactly what inflation might look like with a deceleration momentum. But the job market, you know, on a trending basis has decelerated, but as you say, pretty much not yet in line with what the Federal Reserve wants. Don't forget the Federal Reserve has an employment rate in their own summary of economic projections, a hundred basis point higher than today by the end of the year. They have it as their base case. <laughs> I mean, you need quite some weakness there and we haven't seen it yet. So let me ask you uh, something about the curve because you talked about the inversion in the front end, which is a very interesting um, aspect. Two stands, five thirties are negative, have been negative for now, something like 15 months, something like that in some cases. What do you make of these curve inversions? Do they signal something particular to you? Are they going to uninvert? What's your take there? Yeah, you know, I, I think originally when we got to an inverted stance, and this goes back to uh, pre-COVID as well, curves went inverted also. And um, I, I had been doing some work and, and I thought at that time was I, I fully respect the historical um, importance and relationship of inverted yield curves and their predictability value uh, with respect to recessions. But I was thinking, you know something what we didn't have in years past? We didn't have quantitative ease. You didn't have the Fed's balance sheet at that time pre-COVID, you know, four and a quarter trillion dollars, where it became almost nine trillion dollars post-COVID. So I do think that does play a role when you have such a large buyer and, and a buyer at the back end of the curve. If you looked at some of the numbers of the holdings of the Fed prior to when they started quantitative tightening, um, I think it was somewhere around 40% or so was in that five to 10 year kind of area of what they were buying. So I, I do think that there was some muddying of the waters there. And I remember Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester in an interview said something similar. She respects <clears throat> an inverted yield curve, but perhaps its predictability value, you need to see a larger inversion because of that. Well, I, I, I tended to agree with that analysis, and guess what? We got that larger inversion. So I think if you look at it from that standpoint, you would say, you know, the market tends to be right. You would think the curve is signaling there, there's going to be a recession of some sort. Maybe, maybe even not a textbook. Maybe just another negative quarter of GDP coming down the pike. It, it would be really interesting to see if we avoid a quote unquote technical recession, right? Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, given how sharp the inversions are that you're seeing now through all out the curve. I mean, originally, as you were mentioning, twos, tens, fives, thirties, when it became three month T-bill and 10 year, that's when you started to take a little bit, I think, more uh, attention to the story. So to me, I, I'm going to respect the curve and, and say it, it does point towards the U.S. moving into a recession. Maybe it's a second, third quarter kind of phenomenon, and it's not that long lasting. We'll, we'll wait and see, but I'll tell you, you know, just based upon history, the curve would seem to be telling you we're going into negative territory. It's just a question of when and by how much. So, Kevin, I, uh, I want your take on global fixed income markets in relation to this dollar curve as well. Uh, both Elf and I have a background in fixed income in Europe, uh, so we obviously uh, – 
used to watch this curvature in the dollar curve um, when we took decisions on whether to buy uh, U.S. Treasuries or not, since the curvature is important when you measure the um, yield after an FX hedge as a European investor in the U.S. Treasury curve. And with a big inversion in the dollar curve relative to what we see elsewhere, it is just simply very tricky to find a good reason to buy a U.S. Treasury with an FX hedge on top of it as a Japanese investor or as a, as a European investor. So what do you make of the foreign appetite for U.S. Treasuries in, co in the context of this curve inversion and whether it spills over to other curvatures globally? Let's go back to, you know, 2018, the end kind of a 2018. I think it was um, November 8th, if I'm not mistaken. The 10-year Treasury hit three and a quarter. But the Fed funds rate, if I'm not mistaken, was was around two and a quarter, two and a half at that time, right? Big difference now. We're we're, we're let's call it we're 40 basis points higher on the 10-year. Let's call it 365. But guess what? That hedge is a lot more expensive now. You're you're talking you know more than 200 basis points above where that is. And if you listen to what Pal is guiding you, it could be another 50 basis points higher on top of that. So I think. For if investors are waiting for the global investor to bail out rates here in treasuries, they're going to be waiting a long time. I, I don't think you're going to see that same type of behavior that you saw in the past. And another, I mean, it, it does go back. I remember, I remember being in Switzerland and being in Italy pre-COVID, and you know, talking to European-based investors who were putting money into dollars um, at the time. I think what what's interesting at that point was what I mentioned earlier. I mean, you were also talking about negative rates in Europe, and, and that's not there anymore. So um, even though you can look at it mathematically and say, well, you know, maybe that's not a big. I, I think psychologically, if you're talking about negative rates in fixed income, that was a very hard concept for people to wrap their arms around, um, which I think helped perhaps move funds into something like treasuries. So to me, you don't have that. And now you have a Fed funds rate that is topping out perhaps over 5%. To me, that doesn't bode well for, you know, global investors coming to the rescue for treasuries. This episode is brought to you by Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is a global ETF and ETP sponsor and asset manager founded in 2006. And with a track record of innovation and creating better ways to invest. Today, Wisdom Tree offers a broad range of differentiated ETFs and ETPs across equities, thematics, commodities, fixed income currencies, short and leveraged, and cryptocurrencies with over 80 billion in assets under management. For more information about Wisdom Tree, please visit wisdomtree.eu. Kevin, as we approach 20 minutes in, we are forced, not forced, actually happy to ask you about an actionable macro trade idea with a three to six months horizon based on the view of the world you have with the set of information you have today. Reminder for people, nobody has a crystal ball, but Kevin, your turn to look into yours. All right. I love the crystal ball. It does get hazy out from time to time, but I think, I think for this one, there's, there's a little bit more clarity. And, you know, for, for me, it gets back to the shape of the yield curve, how important it is. What, what are you being compensated for at this point in time? And, looking at the risk parameters involved as well. And I think when you throw a lot of these things into the mix, I look at treasury floating rate notes. So a lot of investors are not familiar that treasury actually issues their own floating rate notes. They're two-year maturities. 
They auction them every month. Um, the initial auction, in other words, the original auction that you would get that carries the maturity date, is the first calendar month of every quarter. So January, April, July, and October. And subsequently, you get reopenings in the following two months. So it's not just treasuries, which are very liquid. It's also a liquid part of the treasury auction or offering curve that you're focusing on. It's somewhere around $600 billion total marketable debt outstanding. Uh, and about we're around now, I think, around $68 billion per issue. So, you know, to me, I think that checks off a few of the boxes. What are some of the other boxes to check off? Well, they are reset with the weekly three-month T-bill. So even though they're two-year maturities, it's just one week duration because you're getting that weekly reset. And it's with a spread. So at that initial auction, since it's a two-year maturity and not a T-bill, there is a spread involved. And typically, it is positive to some extent. Uh, right now, it's probably been averaging around 15, 20 basis points. We had an auction um, in early, uh, late January. It came plus 20 basis points. So if you look at the curve being inverted where it is, A, why would you move out on the duration side and subject yourself to spec speculative rate risk if you don't have to? And the other part of the equation is you're getting a higher yield. Um, the other day, you know, sometimes it goes back and forth because you have the six-month T-bills being impacted by the debt ceiling. Um, and that's a whole other topic, maybe for another, another cast that we can do. Um, but Treasury floating rate notes were the highest-yielding Treasury security. So if you think about that, you're getting the highest-yielding Treasury security with one-week duration that's going to reset every week. And we're in a regimen here where the Fed's going to continue it looks like to raise rates a couple more times, at least one more time, right? And since it's tied to the three-month T-bill, you will have that, that benefit of being closely tied to what the Fed is doing. And if the Fed's on hold, then you're just going to be sitting there, right, clipping this coupon, which at some point right now, I mean, the last read that I saw, the index rate was 485 on a, on a floating rate note. And we were just talking about a two-year and a 10-year and some of the yield levels that you're seeing there. I mean, it's, it's, it's demonstra demonstrably above these other yield levels. And to me, just makes a lot of sense. And just asking yourself the question, why? Why would you put yourself into kind of this speculative rate risk, which we just spent the first 20 to 25 minutes really talking about, right? Um, if you don't have to and, and just, you know, sit there in these Treasury floating rate notes. And then when the Fed starts to guide or provide guidance for rate cuts, maybe you start rethinking the trade. But I think it still has a nice long runway to it. Kevin, we always allow our guests a, an early exit option um, when it comes to the trade. <laughs> and um, in this case, the downside is probably relatively limited, um, but I'll allow you to unpack your thinking a little bit around the debt ceiling um, as a potential risk scenario to this trade. What do you make of this political soap opera surrounding the debt ceiling? Should we expect the debt ceiling to be resolved within a reasonable time frame from here? I knew I shouldn't have brought up the debt ceiling. I, I knew you would, <laughs> it would come back to haunt me. Um, I, I do think that you know, the U.S. will not default. 
I, I do think when push comes to shove uh, that they will come to an agreement. Now, are they going to take it to the 11th, 11th hour? Probably that's the more likely scenario at this stage of the game. I mean, back to what I said before, we've all been doing this a, a long time, and this has to be one of the worst political atmospheres there's ever been for a debt ceiling debate here in the U.S. So both sides will dig their heels in. But, you know, if it comes to the point in the summer when Treasury's extraordinary measures um, are going to run out and you see perhaps the stock market here in the U.S., the Dow dropping a thousand points on a regular basis, I do think that the politicians will get the message very quickly and avoid an actual default uh, on Treasury. So I do think there's a lot of noise between now and I don't know, it's sometime in the summer. I don't think anyone's quite sure when the extraordinary measures would run out. But it affects more what we've seen in the past. And I know past is not always prologue, right, for the future. But it tends to impact T-bills more than anything else in treasuries because those are going to be the securities that would be impacted at the drop dead, at the deadline date. That's why I mentioned six-month bills. They're the ones being slightly impacted right now because six months from now, we're in summertime. And as this continues, that will probably become the three-month bill. So that's where actually these floating rate notes, you kind of can remove yourself from some of the noise that you see in the bill market um, from that vantage point. So that <clears throat> that would be the way that I'm looking at it. Now, the other thing, what about a downgrade, people ask? Well, you know, perhaps, you know, if I say no to do default, is there, is, any, is there a probability above zero for a downgrade? There is, I, I think. That's not my base case. It's not my call. But if you go back to 2011, S&P downgraded the U.S. after they came to an agreement to avoid the debt ceiling expiring, and it was because of the process. Well, I think we can all agree the process has not improved over the last, you know, <laughs> 11, 12 years. So that would be something to watch as well. But what was interesting 11 years ago, where you would have thought maybe treasuries could have suffered a little bit from being downgraded, they actually rallied because it was viewed as a risk-off event. Well, well, Kevin, we got it all. We got the coverage of the fixed income market, credits included, a trade for people to go and harvest roughly 5% a year. Not too bad, I would say, being paid just to wait. And overall, also some, uh, well, considerations on the debt ceiling, let's say, which is always helpful. I consider that rather a soap uh, opera in the US than anything else, but you know, we, we do it from time to time. Why not? It's entertainment after all. Kevin. <laughs> Uh, if people want to find more about your work, when, where can they do that? Well, certainly just go on our website at wisdomtree.com. Uh, that would be the number one place to find information, content, and any, any other type of narratives that you'd be looking to expand upon. So that would be certainly the place to go to. Thanks for being with us, Kevin. Thanks for having me, everybody. So we're back. We have had... Kevin Flanagan, uh, who is the head of fixed income uh, strategy at Wisdom Tree, and he's been with us laying out his thesis and his thoughts about the fixed income market and basically coming out with a pretty clear, straightforward, simple, 
but probably effective trade idea, which is what, Andreas? Well, basically just to park your money in uh, floating rate notes in the US until we have more clarity. Um, I think it's um, that's the simple summary of what he said. Uh, and um, the USFR ETF from Wisdom Tree essentially mostly mirrors this tr um, this trade. Um, and I, I would consider it a, a rather defensive view, right? Um, we're not really sure for how long the Fed will be able to keep interest rates at current levels. We're not really sure uh, to which extent the recession will show up earlier than um, expected. Uh, so why not just park your money, get 5%-ish and see what happens? Um, I, 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 I have sympathy for such a view right now. Um, I mean, at least, at least if you're scared of, of what the scenario will bring. Um, so it's a very simple, straightforward way to just take a defensive bet, earn a bit of carry. A couple of comments on these, because there has been quite a squeeze over the last few weeks of any carrier risk premium trade. So volatility has been sold in many asset classes to harvest premium. Um, carry trades and credit spreads are, were prevalent. And that happens, Andreas, when people expect nothing to happen. A very predictable path for the Federal Reserve and, you know, disinflation, but no recession. So then you just sell premium. You, you cash in, you harvest money by selling vol or premium anywhere. Uh, there is something to be said there. Uh, these trades were extremely prevalent, for sure you remember, in 2017 and 2019. There was no inflation, there was mediocre growth, and central banks were at the lower bound. So the only thing you could try and do to make some money is to sell any vol in any asset class. So the VIX traded very low and bond vol was very low. Back then, risk-free rates were negative in Europe, were negative in many other jurisdictions and zero in the US. And now we have risk-free rates at 4.5% in the US, about to go at least 35 in Europe, um, that's a different landscape because selling vol, of course, is a very um, risky exercise. It could expose you to quite vicious move against you. And you instead are rewarded roughly 4 to 5% for just keeping your money in short-term bills. That's a different setup than 2017, 2019, where this carry harvesting, vol harvesting trades were done against a risk-free rate of 0%. What do you make of this consideration? Well, it's a very fair consideration. You could essentially use the same kind of logic to discuss whether the equity risk premium is, is worth pursuing right now. Um, I mean, if, if you look at the implied um, earnings yield, you don't get a lot of extra uh, yield by, by throwing your money at uh, various U.S. equity sectors right now, since the equity risk premium is basically running as low as it did in 2007 um, on, on a gauge like this. So I, 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 I have to admit that it, at some point this year, it must be an attractive um, alternative to just park your money at 5% and see what happens. Uh, and if we start seeing those flows um, to a larger extent than what we see right now, I mean, retail is back when it comes to risk taking <laughs> over the past few weeks. Yeah. Um, the, the, the most recent retail data suggests uh, 
um, adding to risk taking uh, over the course of February so far. Uh, in sharp contrast to January, actually, retail was very, very short heading into January. A uh, lot of flows into the short uh, Nasdaq position, for example, but that has changed. Um, so if we start to observe these flows, I guess we should also expect uh, spillovers to, to bro- the broader equity space. But as of now, we don't observe these flows. We simply don't. There was an interesting study about retail that I want to flag for the audience of the macro trading floor. Uh, I think Goldman Sachs estimated yesterday that about 50% of the option volume of the S&P 500 has options maturing in six hours or less. What? I mean, it's an amazing number. We've basically turned the option market on the S&P and single stocks into a casino, into gambling on a sport event and waiting for a few hours for the outcome, basically. That's, that's to say the least, interesting. It probably also explains some whipsaw effects we see in the Nasdaq or in the S&P where you see these sharp rallies and then sharp drawdowns intraday this kind of, of market structure, changing market structure, might help explain some of this intraday evolve. I found that fascinating. And the, the fact that technology has become so widespread and the access to financial markets has become so widespread has obviously positive effects, but also in some cases, some uh, dubious effects on market structure like this one. And I guess the good old Warren Buffett uh, is not satisfied with this. or did, maybe, he, maybe he actually is. Um, it allows him to. <laughs> to take the over the side of this short-term turmoil um, to a large extent, probably. And I wanted to, to get your take on the best risk rewards out there right now. And maybe I can start with um, some flavor on, on what I see as the best risk rewards in, in, in markets right now, given what we've discussed about markets now suggesting that the recession pricing should be sort of taken out of the equation to a large extent. I think the Japanese yen offers tremendous risk reward from a couple of perspectives. First of all, if this left tail growth wise, growth wise needs to be repriced back up. So the recession risk needs to be repriced to a certain extent, um, as a consequence of weaker numbers into Q2. Then I would assume that the Japanese yen fares decently well, um, since the spread trade dollar minus uh, Japanese yen in rates terms will likely compress quite substantially again. Um, that's a very straightforward view. It's a classic view on the Japanese yen being a risk off currency and, and all that. Should this higher for longer narrative stick with us for a while, then the Japanese yen is potentially also a good buy since the Bank of Japan is the central bank most out of sync with this view um, still. Um, and it also allows for speculation in a Japanese, um, uh, the, a new uh, governor for the Bank of Japan uh, allowing a new strategy uh, based on the policy response um, seen when Amamiya was uh, considered as the new governor, right? So I think there are th- basically three scenarios allow the, allowing the Japanese yen to to, to work uh, in this kind of environment. One, if is inflation, uh, sorry, recession risks are repriced. Second is if the higher for longer persists, allowing Bank of Japan to respond to it. Third is that we get this hawk entering Bank of Japan with a new strategy. Uh, so the risk reward seems decent in, in that trade. Obviously a negative carry trade, they all are when we are at this point. <laughs> I was about to go there. I mean, geez, every, every, everywhere you look at and you don't want to jump on the bandwagon of soft landing or strong growth, obviously you need to pay. So anything that 
can protect you in a recessionary environment generally costs you money up front. <laughs> Let me put it like that. And the Japanese yen is a good example. But I agree on the fact that it could also work from an idiosyncratic perspective. I mean, it can work even if the macro base case doesn't unfold. So let's say the recession uh, in, in this case, but it can work because of idiosyncratic reasons still. So it's uh, at least... It has a couple of potential good payoff. It, it becomes a decent expected value trade because it, it doesn't depend on one outcome to actually make money, but it could make money in different outcomes. It's an interesting trade. Yes, I agree. If if we look across the board in um, in fixed income space, uh, I think that's relevant for us to discuss given that we've had Kevin Flanagan guesting the show. Uh, I, I really struggle to find good risk reward trades uh, trades right now in in dollar rates, uh, since it will um, basically end up being a bet on the next uh, non-farm payrolls report. <laughs> and I kind of dislike that, uh, since I don't feel like I have an edge on, 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 on such a bet. Um, so I currently, I'm kind of stuck without positions in, in US but, fixed income. But uh, me, sorry to interrupt you, but you are, you're right on pointing out that you have no edge in certain things because the standard position, tactically speaking, of somebody should be have no positions. Yeah. I mean, there is this urge that people have to have something on. I don't understand really. If the risk reward pays off or you think it pays off, then okay. But otherwise, I mean, there is a CPI report on Thursday next week. Uh, sorry, mm. on, the, on the 14th. Yeah. Mm. Do you have any particular insights on month-on-month -month, uh, CPI and especially of services X housing month-on-month? -month? Honestly, I don't. But that will be the driver of fixed income next week. So, And you're right on the labor report next. I mean, do you know whether after the seasonal adjustment in January we're going to see something different in February? No, you don't. So really, it's all about waiting for the right setup before taking up trades. And, and that is why I... I still like expressing myself via the euro curve in fixed income space mm -hmm. um, since this mixture of um, sticky core inflation, um, st we still get signals of that uh, wage negotiation rounds look relatively hot, I'd say, yeah. around um, the European continent, Belgium, um, Belgian wages increased materially in January, for example, uh, and pairing that with a, a complete landslide in energy prices, allowing the headline uh, to just fall off a cliff. Remember that the month-on-month -month headline uh, in March was above 2%. Uh, in, in the Eurozone in 2022. Uh, so, I mean, just from base effects, we will get a complete landslide in headline inflation in February and March and April. Um, and I think that cocktail is very, very decent still for the flattener in the Euro curve. Uh, so two cents uh, or else um, the uh, Euriba uh, set three contract versus um, the Euriba set four contract. So t December 23 versus t December 24 looks super interesting still. Um, so... Spread trades flattening the curve. You lose money there if uh, recession is avoided. I mean, if it's really avoided long enough and it's really a soft landing and it's really, you know, then at some point there is no particular reason for the central bank to validate these forward cuts being priced in, right? I mean, they, will, they can just keep rates where they are. But ultimately, I also agree on that, that it potentially looks like a decent risk-reward trade. By the way, on the ECB, before we close the program, there has just been a news on the wires that they have, um, after done, after doing QE and uh, keeping rates negative through uh, basically the first inflationary bout, they have now asked labor unions and people to be moderate about wage demands and the rest, because otherwise, you know, it's a wage price spiral. 
geez, maybe you should do your homework first in a decent way with, before asking people not to get, uh, not to ask for, for larger wage increases. But anyway, we have seen that already in England. That's not new. But uh, no, it's not new. Uh, and I suppose that uh, the ECB staff will ask for 10% in any way. But <laughs> and never mind. What I wanted to say here ultimately is that uh, after watching Lagarde um, on the press conference, I'd actually say that the most important part of the ECB reaction function is now to assess whether the running impulse from energy prices will remain as low as it is right now from uh, an inflation perspective. She spent most of the time addressing politicians saying, we don't want to spike in energy prices again, because that is ultimately what led to this um, second round effect within wages. And I actually think she's right to a certain extent. So watch the natural gas price. That's maybe the most important thing for the ECB reaction function by now. And uh, Andreas, given you have done quite some work on natural gas, I think that's the moment to tell people where can they find you if they want to know more about your work. Well, I, um, I have a substack called the energy cable um we address natural gas and oil on a running basis with price signals there uh, else you can find me at um, stenoresearch.com uh, where we obviously also track these things on a running basis if you're interested in uh, macro translated in english with an italian accent of course then uh, you find that on the macrocompass.com together with actionable portfolios trade ideas interactive tools and more so that's where you go the macrocompass.com Anything else, Andreas? Yeah, I just wanted to, to, to say to you, if, if, we, um, if we end up being right, wrong on macro this year, I think we should start a sub stack with pizza recipes instead. <laughs> I think I would do pretty well there. Pretty sure, pretty sure. <laughs> I right, would probably yeah. do worse. <laughs> yes, you are not invited, by the way. I'll do that sub stack alone. Come on, give me a break. I'll talk to you guys. We will talk to you guys again next Sunday.